1: Good afternoon, Mark Tushnet in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today is May 2nd, 2022, and we're doing a podcast about Mark's recent book about the court of Charles Evans Hughes. My name is Bill Domnarski. I write, or I should say I do podcasts about literary subjects and about legal subjects. So, Mark, let me draw you to the uh, title page of your volume, which is volume 11, the Hughes court, the progressive from progressivism to pluralism. And it's all under the rubric of history of the United, of the Supreme court of the United States, the Oliver Wendell Holmes device. Now that's some title page. Mm -hmm. Right. Tell us about the Oliver Holmes
2: Wendell device. Uh, So Oliver Wendell Holmes was a great figure in US constitutional and legal history. Um, He uh, lived to be 93. Uh, He had no children. um, He was married, but had no children. Uh, His probably shaping experience was during the Civil War uh, when he was uh, on the battlefront and seriously wounded two or three times once. Almost dying, the bullet grazed his neck and and almost uh, cut of uh, you know, a, a serious uh, blood vessel, um, and and his his view of the world was shaped by two things: one, a sort of fatalism about uh, about experience, but also a patriotism in uh, preserving the union. Um, One of his most famous speeches was called A Soldier's Faith, uh, and it's about fighting for a cause cause that you don't fully understand, but the fight is what uh, matters. So when, as he was nearing death, uh, he uh, had a will that gave his entire estate to the government of the United States. indication of his uh, his patriotic feelings. Uh, Congress actually didn't know what to do with the money for quite a while. It uh, was there in the Treasury for maybe 13 years, something like that, after his death. And eventually, Congress established a commission called the Oliver Holmes, Wendell Holmes Devise committee uh, to decide what to do about uh, with his estate. Um, And the committee decided to uh, commission a series of volumes on the history of the Supreme Court. Uh, And as you indicated, uh, they've been coming out um, at irregular intervals. Mine is what, the 12th, I think, is what you said, Um, number, the immediately preceding one in uh, sort of historical sequence will be published next year or the year after um and and then the series will be uh complete up until the uh appointment of earl warren and uh there's now an earl warren volume in progress so the commission's is now out of money basically they've spent uh, um, who was writing the Earl Warren um, uh, a history oh. professor
1: named Laura Kalman. Oh, sure. I know Laura. Yeah. Uh, oh, she's wonderful. I'm doing a podcast with her later in the uh, year. Right. with Her new book about. Um, I think it's FDR. I think it is the
2: court packing. Plan. Oh. The court packing. Oh, I didn't know
1: she was doing that. That's great. Yeah. I mentioned that Holmes had uh, written that essay about his Civil War experience. And the funny thing is, he's actually, I think, a better essayist than he is a judicial writer. He's a great judicial writer, don't misunderstand me, but he's a terrific, terrific essayist.
2: Yeah, uh, so uh, two of his works, The Soldier's Face, I mentioned, and uh, uh, a lecture called The Path of the Law are sort of classics that everybody you know, who wants to know about the history of American law should read. I myself think he an early article he wrote called "Privilege, Malice, and Intent." It, it's an article about tort theory. It's it's an unbelievably brilliant piece of work. Um, sort of helps you understand lots of things about jurisprudence as it developed uh, afterwards. So yeah, he was he was um, he was a very terse uh, uh, opinion writer, um, partly that way he disciplined himself to do that because he wrote physically, in those days, of course, in longhand, at a standing desk. So, you know, he would stand there at the desk and write out the opinion. And, um, you know, when he got tired, you know, he understood the longer it got, the more tired he'd get from standing around. So he figured out a way to uh, uh, condense things uh, down um, some of his colleagues uh, thought that some of his opinions were too brief that they obscured uh, difficulties uh, that uh, that needed to be explored. I think Holmes's view was that he understood that the difficulties were there, but that the case could be resolved without discussing them.
1: I think in one of his letters, he famously said that when the knees begin to buckle, then it's time to stop or something to that effect. <laughs> so. Well, he, of course, appears in your book, but he doesn't make it all the way through. No. When does he uh, leave the court?
2: Uh, it, he uh, retires. I, these dates sort of blur because it's been a long time since I started working on the project. Uh, 1932 or 33, uh, he uh, just before his uh I think it's for his 90th birthday. Uh, He he, uh, goes on a national broadcast to talk about, you know, his life. Um, You can actually locate, it's not the full radio recording, but um, the Harvard Law Library has available a portion of his uh, sort of farewell address. uh, and, And it's this frail old man's voice. Uh, uh saying, you know, his time has come and so on. Um it's quite quite moving. I should say that one of the things that uh I learned in doing the uh, book was that uh contrary to the well to supplement a view widely held in by legal historians and legal academics that Holmes was a sort of austere difficult um um Sort of hard to hard to get a handle on personality. His colleagues loved him. Uh, they sort of they would they called him charming. Uh, and he apparently was a great rock hunter, uh, even in his night, late eighties, early nineties. And they just enjoyed being in his presence. As he got older, he you know would fall asleep during the conferences, the court's work, and so on. And they you know. They understood that, uh, um, but they they really uh, um, appreciated him as a person.
1: There's a great story that uh, his housekeeper told about when Charles Evans Hughes came over to tell him it was time to retire, that he walked up the stairs. I guess his study was on the second floor. and she talks about Hughes going into the room and then coming out, say fifteen, twenty minutes later. With tears streaming down his cheeks, was he had to tell the great man that it was time to go. Yeah, yeah, that says a lot about him, I think. Right, right. He's also a great letter writer. I mean, I can understand the charming part and being a great raconteur because his letters are wonderful.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he he had, a, you know, wide correspondence. I think he was a comp- a, a very complicated personality. He d- he did sort of need to be loved. And as time went on, you know, the sources of uh, admiration uh, changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right, but let
1: me get back to the the Holmes device. How is it that you ended up writing this volume? Did you get a call in the middle of the night saying, help us, help us, what happens?
2: Yeah, so basically uh, what had happened was that the first, when the commission decided to do this, they appointed uh, Paul Freund, a Harvard Law professor, as the general editor. Uh, Now, Freund had been a um, young law student in the early 1930s and had been in the Solicitor General's office during the New Deal uh, and then became uh, probably the um, sort of leading uh, constitutional law professor in the country after he went to Harvard to, to, to teach. And Freud decided to assign or have technically have the committee assign him responsibility for the Hughes Court volume. Uh, but he uh, he actually had Difficulty in writing. Uh, I have to say, uh, I took a course from Freund in my freshman year at at Harvard uh, as an undergraduate, and the course was the reason I went to law school. It was a brilliant mm-hmm. course. He was a great teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, that course was a great course. It was just, it was wonderful. Um, but here, Freund uh, was never a productive writer. And I think he uh, just had difficulty taking on large scale projects like this. Uh, And so either while he was still alive or just after he passed away, the committee chose another person um, who had written a dissertation about uh, uh, the Hughes Court, um, uh, who was a law professor at the University of Michigan. Uh, and he uh, worked on it for a while, produced a couple of large important articles, but was also committed to doing uh, other legal projects. And now, who would that be? Uh, a guy okay. named Richard Friedman, like Truman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, the committee decided that he was not making progress fast enough, and so in I think it was two thousand. 8, 2007 something like that um they they came to me uh, to see if I wanted to take over the project and and I thought about it uh, briefly but I thought it was a, an interesting project to do I knew it was going to take a long time um I sort of told my wife actually that the assignment was something like, you know, the black spot in Treasure Island. If it was passed on to you, you knew you were going to (laughs) die. So I managed to get through it, but it took me more than a decade. Uh, uh, Um,
1: Just a word about Paul Freund. Uh, You say, I didn't know that he had trouble writing, that it took him a while, I guess, but he was a beautiful writer. His stuff really holds up well when you read it now.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So how would he have approached the project if he had actually had the time and the inclination to really pursue it. So the reason I'm, I asked that is I'm trying to isolate the uh, the dynamics, I guess you would say of your book, the things that you coalesce your themes around.
2: Right, so uh, um, I just restate what you read. The subtitle of my book is From Progressivism to Pluralism and uh the major theme is that during the hughes that during the hughes court years all i'd say all of the justices including those who are now regarded as the most reactionary actually had bought into a fair amount of the progressive restructuring of constitutional government Uh, they disagreed about how far that restructuring should go. Uh, But they were all sort of progressives. And and, uh, and then by the end of the decade, Hughes served from 1930 to 1941. uh, By the time he left, a new kind of political formation, interest group pluralism was at least on the horizon. And you could see that in the court's work. So the theme of the book is, again, from progressivism to this new political formation.
1: My you, guess, my, my guess, you say in the book, in um, the opening paragraph, you say, there was no constitutional revolution of 1937. Can you explain a little more about that and how that fits with the theme that you're outlining?
2: Yeah, so, so most of, I think the most common view of the Hughes Court is that It's divided into two periods, one up to 1937, when conservatives slash reactionaries were in control and eventually confronted the New Deal. Uh, Then there's this sort of one year period of a battle between FDR and the court, uh, which in a complicated way, FDR basically won. Uh, although he was not able to enact his court packing plan, but he, 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 the story goes, gained control of the court, and so, you know, 1930 to 1936, conservatives are in control, battle over the court, 1937 to 1941, the liberals get control. Uh, I think that's the conventional view. Um, I my uh, take is that. Uh, There were differences between what the court was doing in the early 1930s and what it was doing in the late 1930s, no question about that. Uh, But the changes were not revolutionary uh, or uh, the direct product of the court packing plan and Roosevelt's simultaneous failure and victory. They were the product of a more sort of i would say evolutionary transformation within uh, accepted premises of the law where again just justices who agreed on the same premises could come to different conclusions on specific cases and when roosevelt got new appointees the new appointees came to a different set of conclusions, but they were not uh, yet using a uh, different way of thinking about the law.
1: So a lot of this turns on this uh, well-known phrase, the switch in time that saved nine, or I think some formulation of that. So the prevailing view had been for many years that the pressure had been on the court to get with it, so to speak, to follow public opinion, follow the president, And suddenly there was a switch, but you don't think there was suddenly a switch.
2: Well, the the story is is quite complicated. Um, On the one hand, uh, the conventional story is that um, the two key justices, Owen Roberts and Charles Evan Hughes um, uh, were alert to the pressure on the court and although they had been voting in a conservative way, as the pressure on the court built, they changed their votes to vote in a liberal way. Um, Now, there are a lot of details to go into that to understand the story. I actually have an appendix to the uh, book that tries to talk a bit about it. Um, uh, So, the, the, I, I don't use this line, but in, in uh, Joseph Heller, the novelist, wrote a book called Something Happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is clear that something happened in the period of the court packing plan. Something happened on the court. Exactly what happened is quite unclear. Um, there's this wonderful statistical study that shows uh, the charts, the conservatism of Hughes and Roberts over a five or seven year period and the chart which i find quite persuasive shows a dramatic drop in Roberts's conservatism in the 1937-38 term and then a rise it goes back to being conservative and it shows a similar low, low, not as dramatic drop and rise for Hughes as well. So there's something going on. Uh, uh, I, 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 it's not persuasive to me that uh, either Hughes or Roberts was directly responding to political pressure. Um, they probably were Sensitive to the fact that in the background there was this political stuff going on. Um, there's a wonderful episode when it occurred has become controversial, but I think the best view is um, sort of as the as the threats of the court were uh, coming on. Hughes spent an an unusually long time uh, in a conversation with Roberts uh, and at, at Roberts's farm uh, and probably did say something about you know what's going on politically um, Roberts is um, a, a, bi- a biographer of of um, Harlan Fisk Stone, who was also on The Corner of Time, interviewed uh, Roberts about what had happened during this period. And Roberts is very, uh, very, I think, sort of charming in this interview. Um, and he says, you know, I don't really remember exactly what happened. And I, it's hard for me to explain why I seem to have changed my mind. But Hughes was a really persuasive guy. And uh, I, yeah, I went along with him. And. Um, uh, Roberts has this, this is also complicated. Felix Frankfurter reports that Roberts says something like, Who am I to condemn the good Lord for not making me as great a judge as Holmes and Hughes and, and Brandeis and a bunch of others? So he was, uh, he appreciated his own limitations and understood that Hughes was a better lawyer than he was. And so, you know, Hughes could have been talking to him about legal, you know, how to think about these things legally. So, again, something happened, not persuasive that it was, they started saying, oh, we have to worry about what Congress is going to do to us, Uh, but um, maybe thinking about, you know, what the court was gonna look like over the next five to 10 years and how they would be remembered as judges, as me- members of the court, uh, we ne- we will never really know for sure. Now, Hughes was a uh,
1: dominating figure, intimidating figure. Someone described him as looking like Jehovah himself right. with that great beard that he had. Did he ever leading up to this confront the uh, reactionaries, Big um, Reynolds and his cohorts about holding the legislation back that was going to affect the lives of millions and millions of people, the New Deal le- legislation that had been passed, uh, I,
2: I, I found no evidence of, of that. Uh, um, he was uh, he was intimidating as a legal mind, and he he would you know make his legal arguments, uh, but but I, I there's. I, Oh,
1: we need to, I think, during the the first half of this period, you you mark it to thirty seven. Um, it was a pretty divided court. I mean, this core group, the so called four horsemen, were um, at least reactionary, maybe even more. And there was great personal animosity on the court, wasn't there?
2: Well, so again, I hate to say this, Again, it is a complicated story. So James McReynolds was a terrible person and nobody except apparently Bill Douglas eventually liked him. Uh, They just couldn't get along with him. Um, There's one episode where uh, the courts um, divided over a case at the end of the term, he's gone off to a vacation There are nine justices on the court. He's gone off to a vacation. He voted one way uh, before he left, um, uh, and then coalitions changed, and it turned out that uh, on one issue he had voted on, uh, the court changed its view, Uh, but the majority shifted. Um, He was gone. They didn't want to Gonna be a pain in the neck to contact him. And so there's you know, this opinion that says on this issue, the nine member court affirms the lower court by an evenly divided vote. Um, there's a, a, a note by a Harvard uh, Yale yeah, law professor called Sawing a Justice in Half. How does a nine justice court divide evenly? It was because McReynolds had gone and they just didn't want to hassle with him to figure out what to do. So he was a terrible person. Everybody else was uh got along uh, quite well uh, Everybody was a little overstated uh, but uh Willis Van De Vanter, who turned out to be one of my favorite characters, very obscure justice uh, everybody liked Van devanter. He was just a nice guy uh and and George Sutherland was a very smart, conservative lawyer. Um, who again, you know, got along well with people. Um, they're, they're, um, the, the one sort of exception, and this is a little tricky, is the justice I mentioned earlier, Harlan Fisk Stone, who was a sort of, I don't know, not quite prickly personality, but he loved to gossip about the justices. And one of his correspondents was Felix Frankfurter, eventually a colleague. And the two of them, and Frankfurter was a great gossip also, and the two of them sort of, I think, sort of fed their own worst tendencies, each other's worst tendencies. So when Stone wrote about his colleagues to Frankfurter, he was sort of, we would call it these days, snarky uh, about them. uh, and, And Frankfurter would reinforce that by saying, yes, how terrible the opinions were. But uh, other than that, I, you know, I think they got along um, uh, pretty well. Um, It's also, I want to note that while it's true that there were sort of divisions in the early period, there were also continuities that are worth emphasizing. So Sutherland, one of the great uh, conservatives, uh, of the court he was a, he was a terrific lawyer he was a, been a senator and president of the american bar association um and he was a really good lawyer uh during the time during this period there was a case called the Scottsboro case which involved the conviction of 8 or 9 african americans for rape in alabama and these were these were what were then and now still called legal lynchings, they didn't really get a fair trial. So they they appealed to the Supreme Court and Sutherland writes uh, uh, just a brilliant opinion uh, holding that the uh, defendants had not received their constitutionally guaranteed right to adequate assistance of counsel. Um, And uh, okay and and similarly there are early in the period uh cases of um striking down con- um convictions of communist organizers for uh, various reasons um and in i want to say in 33 uh the court rules in favor of new deal legislation uh um in three significant cases uh, with Roberts and Hughes uh, in the majority. And, and so the, the, the opinions, uh, sorry, the sort of op-eds afterwards say, oh, look, it's not going to be so bad with respect to the entire New Deal program. And then, you know, the program gets enacted and Hughes and Roberts see it uh, somewhat differently from the way they saw the earlier
0: cases.
1: Um, What's interesting to me, in a way, is you had mentioned that uh, who was it had been a senator, Sutherland. 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 Uh, McRonalds himself had been in government; he had been attorney general, if I remember right. right. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes had run for president. I think he's the only one who ever served on the court twice. Right. Uh, is that right? right? So you have this lineup through most of the '30s that's very, very different from the lineup that we have in the court today, where they are all. I think, except for uh, your uh, former colleague, uh, Justice Kagan, um, uh, circuit judges, all of them have been circuit judges. The the life experience that the other, that these Hughes court members brought strikingly
2: different from
1: what we have today. Is that a fair
2: statement? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, uh, Hughes, not only even before he was appointed to the court, he, he was governor of New York and was appointed to the court while he was governor of New York. And then while he was on the court, not technically, he resigned uh, to run for president in 1916. Um, And then was, you know, he lost narrowly uh, and then was reappointed in 1930 as chief justice. Um, uh, uh, Even uh, Stone, Stone had been a, attorney general, a law school dean and attorney general, but sort of even Willis Devanter, who was appointed to the court from a court of appeals, um, had been extremely active in uh, Wyoming uh, Republican politics. And he actually remained active behind the scenes politically in the 1920s and 30s. <laughs> The people he knew gradually lost power. He didn't quite appreciate that, so he was sort of trying to help friends get judgeships by contacting his old political allies. He never was terribly successful, but he was he was enmeshed even while on the court in some aspects of politics. Uh,
1: and then when Roosevelt had a, had his chance, I think he had eight or nine of them to put people on the court. He too. Went with people with broad experience, like Hugo Black, senator from uh, Alabama. Uh, Douglas had been, was the SEC, SEC commissioner. Right. Uh, Frankfurter is an exception. He was an academic. But, um,
2: but he, I should know he was a, a sort of leading public intellectual in the law. Uh, he, you know, he wrote, well, again, what we would now call op eds starting in mm-hmm. the 1920s. Um, so, sitting on the original masthead of the new republic yes. i think he was yes so
1: that continued with roosevelt's appointments and again that contrast is really striking with the appointments that we have today which is another way of asking what would happen today if we had uh, a court made up of of uh, justices with this kind of uh, deep experience in public life
2: well there there are some things i think that would be different uh, it's, i think it's complicated because you have to think about Who you would draw from what you're calling public life to be on the court these days. And with a polarized political system, you'd probably get people with deep ideological commitments, uh, um, not the sort of, not less like. So let me back up. I think what you got from people like those who Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower uh, appointed uh, were people who thought that it was important to bring to deciding constitutional cases an understanding of two things. First, how government actually operated in the trenches. And second, how government actually affected the lives of individual people. that made them more, I would say, pragmatic, flexible, less dogmatic than they otherwise would have been. Not that they were non-ideological, Hugo Black was quite rigid on some some issues. Um, But I think if you look for, you think about, suppose you told a president today, Democrat or Republican, that, uh, you have to choose somebody who has had significant experience in a non-judicial role in high, you know, national politics, um, and then think about who they would choose um, and who their parties would induce them to choose. And I think the answer is they would probably choose people who would think that. You know, their experience in politics was not something they should bring to bear on their decision making. Um, So, yeah, I, at one point I suggested uh, uh, that Trump might appoint Mike Lee or John Cornyn to the Supreme Court. Uh, But we we sort of know now how they likely would have decided uh, cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's probably not that much different from the way Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh decide cases.
1: All right, so all this, uh, uh, we're a little off topic here, but all this changes in the 70s when we begin the string of appointments appointments to the high court who have circuit uh, court experience.
2: i to put you on the spot. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, my own view is that it's a bad thing that that uh, we've lost a lot in not having judges with significant. uh, Experience in national politics. Uh, on the Supreme Court, um, I, I think I think it's the case that um, could be wrong about this, but Sandra Day O'Connor was the last judge on the court who ever had to ask anybody, any ordinary person, for a vote. Mm-hmm. She was elected to the Arizona, I think, appeals court. She may have been appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court, but you know, none of these people have ever actually had to say to ordinary voters. Here's what I think about how government should behave in a way that will benefit you. I think that's a real loss. It strikes me
1: that it it, it encourages a kind of arrogance that uh, in a way is hard to fathom. It's so deep. The idea that uh, people without a whole lot of experience are deciding which way we're going to go as a country strikes me as just terribly arrogant, but that's my own and hobby horse, I guess you'd say, so let's talk about those personalities on the uh, Hughes court. We've talked a little bit about Holmes, and he's replaced by I forgot now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Cardozo, I think.
1: Right, it's Cardozo that uh, uh, McReynolds has the feud with, because McReynolds is an anti Semite. And he won't even be in the same room with uh, <laughs> with Brandeis an extraordinary thing. Now, this is a time when they're not actually. Working together physically because they're all working from home,
2: right? So the the court building opens in nineteen thirty five, uh, and gradually they so until then they've all been working in their homes or in the apartments they have, and they occasionally visit each other and uh, you know to talk about cases and so on. But they weren't in any central place, and then the building opens. Most of them don't really like the building. It was sort of a uh, uh, William Howard task project, uh, um, and and they, you know, it's too austere. It's too magnificent for them, but it, gradually they they move in, and as retirements occur, instead of working from the house or the apartment, they they move into the court, and then they You know, they start interacting with each other in a different kind of way, but you are, you know, you're able to, um, when you're working in your house or apartment, you don't have to deal with these, uh, your colleagues in a regular, in a regular daily basis. You see them during arguments and during the conference, and then, you know, maybe you'll stop by uh, to chat. Uh, some of them lived within blocks of each other, and some actually walked to the court together. Um, but well, different had, different work experience.
1: MacRaealds had a uh, law clerk who then wrote a uh, diary, I guess you would call it, and he later published it, and it depicts him in this working environment that you're talking about, and it paints him as being, I think, uh, extraordinarily aloof from the court.
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I I'm, it's not not unusual, I think, uh, you know, if you think about sharing workspaces or maybe think about what the experience of working over the past two years has been. Uh, it's a different experience when you don't see your colleagues on a regular basis, physically, physically, you know, we're not physically in the presence of your colleagues. It's just different. Um, and, and, you know, they had developed working styles based on the fact that they were working at home. Uh, um, again, occasionally socializing, but not, it's not like, I I was a law clerk in 1972 and 73, and I have this vivid memory of, uh, it could be false, but, but it's clear in my head, uh, of uh, seeing uh, Justice Brennan, who was a sort of shortish guy, and Justice Powell walking down the halls together with Brennan's arm draped over Powell's shoulder. Now, that wouldn't happen if they were not working in the same building. And, you know, Brennan had a way of dealing with people that worked differently in person than remotely, as we would now say.
1: Was he the most important justice on that Warren Court? The court that Hugo Black at one point said should be known as the Black Court, <laughs>
2: yeah, right? So uh, I, I've written a bit about this. There, uh, Brennan and Warren were were sort of co generals. I don't know if that's a a thing, but they each had different kinds of strengths that uh, uh, that reinforced each other, and and I think you know not just because of. Uh, a change in personality, but um, Brandon had to operate differently after uh, Warren left the court uh, than that he had been with Warren on the court. He did, he was quite successful uh, uh, on the court. It, it, so, you know, we think of the Warren court as during Warren's uh, chief justiceship from 1954 to 1968, I guess it is, 69. I, I actually think the Warren Court is sort of the Warren Brennan Court from 1962 to 1976 or 77. Uh, so it continued after Brennan and Warren had left, and partly because of Brennan's continuing uh, effectiveness.
1: Well, I was going to say that uh, in your case here with the Hughes Court, it fits pretty nicely a transformative uh, period. But a lot of times, calling a court after the Chief Justice doesn't really. Reflect what was going on as to who the dominating personalities were the dominant influencers on the court. Um, and I think the Warren court that you're just describing is a very good example of that. In fact, people say today that it's not the Roberts court. It's the Thomas court. I saw an article just a few weeks ago about that. I don't know how true that is, but that's what some people think.
2: Yeah, so it's, you know, it is misleading to label uh, to. to periodize the court, according to the chief justices. As you say, as it happens, uh, the Hughes court is actually not a bad periodization. Probably better to start it, to actually start it with Hughes, but end it probably, I'd say, with, um, um now I'm blocking, uh, Stone was his successor, probably... The relevant period should be 1931 to 1945 or 46, when Stone uh, passes away. And Fred Vincent, of
1: all people, becomes chief justice. Yep, right. uh, I've had this great fortune in getting people like you. I had Mel Urofsky uh, on a podcast about his book on dissents and how important they've been in American history. And I wanted to actually just take advantage of the fact that I have people like you that I can ask these questions. Are you uh, optimistic about the Supreme Court these days, or are you like me in a world of dread, knowing that soon everything's going to change
2: um, so i I have to uh, say uh, I have no uh, no no good expectations from the court as currently composed okay um I've been for actually quite a long time a a proponent of what's called either court packing or court expansion, uh, which I think is more, we could have seen the necessity for it a a while ago. Uh, It's become, in my view, more urgent now. Um, It's, of course, completely unlikely to occur in the short run, but uh uh one of the one one way of describing what happened in the 1930s was that for mostly accidental reasons um the court got too far out of line from where the general population was It's always going to be a bit out of line for a variety of structural reasons. Uh, But when it gets too far out of line, um, political, judicial, constitutional crises, conflicts are likely to arise. Um, Sometimes those uh, conflicts are productive. I'm not against conflict as such. Uh, But I think we may be on the way to seeing Something like that happening over the next four or five years, um, and then it'll be interesting to see how it's resolved. I mean, I'm getting old, so it's not going to affect me directly. But uh, uh, you know, there may be. Although I don't have high and very low expectations from the court as currently uh, composed, I'm actually more open to the possibility that there'll be valuable developments from my point of view, again, uh, if you take a five year perspective.
1: Well, I wish I could share your, or at least moderate optimism because I I think we have uh, cultural warriors on the bench now, beginning with Thomas and going to the most recent appointments. And I don't think they're ever gonna budge and take a take stock of public opinion and how uh, the public wants certain constitutional rights, even though they're not explicitly recited in the Constitution. So you said that you got this uh, appointment or assignment back in 2008, I think it was, to write the book. And it comes out in 2021. That's a long gestation period. It must have been a difficult book to write.
2: Um, It was, it was, I, I, Difficult to write is probably not the way I would describe it. it there was a lot. Uh, I had to learn an enormous amount of stuff uh, to do. It was tremendously valuable. I, I learned a lot while I was doing this. Um, and I should say, uh, I couldn't have done anything like uh, an acceptable job uh, earlier in my career. I just had to have a lot of you know background stuff in my head to do it. Um, uh, and and it did take um, a lot of research and um, effort to figure things out. Uh, once I'd figured out themes for the various sections, the actual writing was not as difficult, but it's a very long book. Mm-hmm. So to say, you know, I could write a chapter in two months Says you know that's what there's like 24 or 30 chapters I don't know but that's you know two or three years of writing uh, just just doing the writing after all the research is done Um so you know it it's wasn't it wasn't hard to write in the sense of you know producing this stuff it was. It took a lot of effort to get in the position of being able to write the story I wanted to write. That's what took the time.
1: Well, I'm holding it up now. It's unfortunate that the uh, we just have an audio transmission going out to the uh, audience, but it's a beautiful book. And it's not only really a big book, it's a very heavy book. <laughs> it <laughs> yes. must be the type of paper that was used. One of the things that I noticed in looking at the website for the Holmes device, it says that yours is the, or it is true of all the different volumes, the official version of events. How does that affect you as a writer knowing that you have this, this uh, obligation to be, what, impartial, neutral? What is it that leads to the official status that the book gets?
2: Oh, oh I have to say I no, uh, I wrote the book I wanted to write. Um- okay. I didn't, uh, uh, it's not, I mean, in some sense, it's an authorized court, uh, history of the court, but it's not as if I had in mind, gee, you know, there's somebody out there who has to, in some sense, approve it. Um, technically, it did have to be approved by the uh, committee, but I had, uh, it didn't affect
1: Anything that I, I so have. Right. The committee member comes in and says, we want you to change your point of no. view on this, this, and no. this. Okay. All right. So this might be too difficult a question to answer, but if you were to, how many hours a week did you work on it, generally speaking, from 2008 to 2021? I
2: would guess it was. Somewhere, I have to back up by saying I I understand that I am a workaholic. So, hours per week is not the way I would measure things because that would seem ridiculous to anybody else. Okay. Uh, I would say, on average, between one third and one half of my time was spent on the project. from for the entire period now, sometimes I had leaves that I was doing research travel for where I was doing it 100% of the time, but on average, probably between a 3rd and a half. Uh, overall now, I would
1: think that this is a career. Tapping moment in your life with the publication of this book.
2: Uh, that's certainly how I think of it
1: actually I, I is it getting much
2: attention. I'm sorry.
1: Is it getting much attention? The book? Uh,
2: well, it's not. it Just came out. It's huge. It takes time for people to appreciate it. Um, so the answer is not yet. But we'll find out. We hope to do some large-ish event uh, at Harvard in the fall that will uh, make more of a splash than it has so far. But you know, this is a book well, for. This is a book to be on library shelves and to be consulted over the next decades rather than to get on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, I am absolutely
1: delighted that Cambridge sent me the book, it's cost $265. It's a great addition to my library and every library should have a copy of it. Do you have a sense um, of how the previous volumes have sold?
2: No, I don't actually. (laughs) The only thing I know is, you know, the, 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 the committee has run out of money, which means that they weren't getting enough royalties on the books to keep going. But other than that, no, I have no idea. Now, remind me, what's the one that's in progress now? Uh, the the um, the Taft Court, uh, uh, Robert Post of Yale, is just finishing that up. Oh, he's just finishing it. Yeah, I, I think well, he, he had risked it, it
1: um, on the. Uh, opposite the title page, they have all the volumes, one through twelve, and they have his listed. Yeah. Um, is he? I writing think with the another theory. fellow benjamin he's writing
2: with somebody else, isn't he? Uh, no, it, it it's this is another one of these complicated stories. Uh, when he became dean at Yale, his work on the project flagged, and they thought he was going to add another author. And then he finished the deanship and decided to finish the book on his own. At least that's, I, as I understand the story.
1: John Fabian Witt. Right. I think his name. I think he was working for at least for a while on the book with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, Maybe not anyone, now. But,
2: but I think it's gonna come out under post name, uh, solely, or maybe with, you know, not
1: cohort. I've emailed with him over the years about different things. And he's a, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. Post. Yes. Yeah. So it should be a good book. He's also a very talented writer. And I want to be sure I say this to you. You too are a very talented writer. I mean, I don't know if it comes easily to you or whether you're like Freund and had to struggle with it, but you're a great writer. You really are. You bring the whole thing to life.
2: Well, I appreciate the comment. It took me I took me many years of uh uh writing badly before I started to write well. So Well, that's what law reviews will do
1: to you. <laughs>
2: so all right, well, I think we're about
1: done. Anything else you want to add about the book and the uh, effort that you put into uh, writing
2: it? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered just about not maybe not everything, but you know, I could go on for another two hours and you don't want that. So
1: well, I do, but I'm not sure the audience does. <laughs> <says>, so
2: <laughs> it's been great. As I said, I find it
1: to be a real privilege to be able to talk to uh, folks like you who have spent a lifetime really uh, studying the law, studying history and then you bring it to life in a, a book like this. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to partake in, so to speak. So.